0: Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of life. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Auspicious interbeing to you and yours, my friends, and Guinos Hermes. Deep bow to Sophia, our dear goddess wisdom. And a deep bow to my friend. We have an exciting episode for you. We're going to be looking at ecological thinking this year in different ways and this profound shift we need to make to eliminate the gap between the way human beings think and the way nature actually works. Can we learn to think the way nature works? And our guest today has written a marvelous book that touches on The profound philosophical, spiritual, and biological, and even political implications of the science of life that we've been opening up now for a few decades. I'm here today with Neil Thies, who is a professor of pathology at NYU Grossman School of Medicine. Through his scientific research, he has been a pioneer of adult stem cell plasticity and the anatomy of the human interstitium. Dr. Thies' Studies in complexity theory have led to interdisciplinary collaborations in fields such as integrative medicine, consciousness studies, and science-religion dialogue. He is a senior student of Zen Buddhism at the village Zendo in New York City. His most recent book is this one, Notes on Complexity, a scientific theory of connection, consciousness, and being whoa, the big stuff. <laughs> Neil, welcome to Dangerous
1: Wisdom, my friend. Thank you for welcoming me to Dangerous Wisdom. I <laughs> like both halves of that. Oh good. Uh,
0: yes. I uh, want to
1: emphasize one thing about the book. Yes. Please emphasize it. Hold it hold it on the side. This side? Yeah. It's short. Oh. <laughs> it's okay. a short book. I love, so, okay, there you go. <laughs> I like to tell people, I know, it's about everything in existence. Yes. Well, this is a short book. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, so only Lao Tzu has your beat then. It's about everything mm-hmm. in existence, 5,000 <laughs> characters. But mm-hmm, really, mm-hmm. I do want to say to everybody, this is a wonderful introduction. It is short. Okay, that's true. Yeah. It's also very, very accessible because technically speaking, complexity is a mathematical description of patterns. Many of which characterize life, but not necessarily exclusively, but it is like a mathematical description of the patterns of life. Here you don't have to worry, you're going to be able to get through this book, no heavy math, and it's a very skillful, elegantly done um explanation of what is has been going on in this radical shift. Can we talk about that shift? Can we talk about what what is complexity? Tell us, Neil. <laughs>
1: You know that's always the starting point for when I do these kind of podcasts, and I still don't have. Uh, I can't make it more concise than the book. So if Keeping I go fine. on a bit, feel free to no, feel free okay. to interrupt. So complexity, as you said, it's it's uh, a mathematical way of approaching, generally how interacting things, if they fulfill certain criteria, will. Um, from a bottom in a bottom up sort of way, create larger scale structures that no one planned, but they appear planned. A classic example would be ants um, and how they form food lines and they dig tunnels and they can harvest fungi and they can uh, wage war against neighboring colonies. But there's no ant who's in charge. The, The queen ant just serves a reproductive function. She's actually one of the most limited behaviorally. And, um, And somehow, out of just exchanging scent signals, um, basic pheromones that they detect from each other, and when they bump into things in their environment, all these large-scale structures. And it's analogous to how people organize themselves into cities, into economies, into cultures. Um, And where my original work um, got me into complexity Um, How cells organize themselves into bodies and multicellular organisms, Um, because I did stem cell work about 20 years ago. And so complexity is the mathematical way that covers all these things, which we recognize as living things um, or larger scale um, collections of living things like a culture or an ecosystem. Before we had complexity theory, we could describe a lot of the world in terms of equations. Um, so geometry, um, think of water molecules stacked in a crystal. You could That's just geometry. Um, we could talk about um, water flowing through a pipe and um, you could have an equation for how the speed of the water relates to how wide the pipe is or how narrow the pipe is. Sometime in the nineteen 19- Uh, late 60s, early 70s, no, 70s, 60s, (laughs) Um, I can't remember the years. Um, With the invention of computer science, um, things could be, mathematical formulas could be modeled in time, as well as just as the static thing that tells you what's happening in a moment. And out of investigating that came something that more people have heard of than complexity theory, I think, called chaos theory. And the mathematics that underpins it are the, the fractal geometries. People know what fractals are. Um, almost everyone has seen them at this point. They're so widespread, uh, in the culture. But if you haven't seen it, just Google fractal and, and you'll recognize it. It turned that's still that could explain structures, um, that we find in living things. And what chaos describes is. Um, things that are self-similar across scales. So if you think about a tree and you look at the trunk and then it divides into two branches, each one of those branches actually looks like a trunk. And then those branch into smaller branches, each of which looks like a trunk, and then into smaller branches until you finally get to the end where you have a leaf. And then the veins in the leaf start to look like each other at ever smaller scales. Um And I can show you a picture of, uh, you know, the Mississippi River going down into the Delta. And you go, oh, that looks like a river and it's Delta. And then I could tell you, well, actually, it's an MRI arteriogram of someone's vascular supply. And they look the same. So chaos described those kinds of things. But it still couldn't explain how life arises and how life self-organizes, inclusive of the sorts of things you see in chaos. And so um, with continuing explorations of um, using computers to explore order in the world, complexity theory was entered into, and this was in the early to mid-70s. And it's been out there since that time, um, studied robustly in terms of uh, economics as a big topic. Evolution has been a big topic for it. Um, cultural history has been a big topic. Jane Jacobs, who studied um, and described how cities develop from local interactions of people in their neighborhoods, she was doing complexity before complexity existed, but she intuited that this was going on. And um, But I stumbled into it, as I said, when I was doing stem cell research, And um, I was introduced to an artist named Jane Prophet, And uh, we were supposed to be dialoguing about science and art. And when I told her about some of our stem cell stuff, she said, well, that sounds sort of like the way complexity people talk about ant colonies. And from there, everything followed. That was about 20 plus years ago. And um, the book is really um, the 20 years of exploring that moment. Now,
0: that's um, an interesting thing because I'm a big fan of of dialogue. I actually usually say scientists should not be left to themselves to do science. It doesn't make <laughs> sense. And that right. really you should have scientists, philosophers, artists and the public collaborating in some way shape or form. What's interesting about that On collaboration? Everything. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> really, yeah. just just by yeah. nature it should be that, but What's interesting is that in that interaction, this was an artist already drawing from the sciences. And so that's a fascinating twist that you would think that uh-huh. she would say something aesthetic, which turns out to potentially be important depending on how we want to think about complexity. There's another thing that's interesting. So that's one way in which your story illustrates the obsolescence of education, that we currently funnel mm-hmm. scientists into their silos. And then they do this, the work that they do. And, and this cross-pollination is often needed and complex systems would exhibit that. They wouldn't, exist, they wouldn't exhibit this strong isolation. But there's a deeper obsolescence, which is that we haven't taken into account the big revolution that this marks, because the science that we had before this was really a, a science of the extremes. In physics, we have basically highly ordered systems with minimal variables. In fact, the drive is to isolate the variables... And you have these idealized systems where, as you point out, you can you, you can do the math in such a way. It's called linear because I know that the line is going to keep going some way that I can predict. Mm-hmm. And th- so th- that means I don't have to do the calculation. If you just want to know what it's going to be like to get the rocket to the moon, I'll tell you what its speed will be when it gets there yeah. without having to run a simulation, right? I can just yeah.
1: do the math. Right, and, it's, and, it's, and if you look at the the um if you look at film yeah it was film of um nasa when they were doing the apollo missions yeah they were using slide rules (laughs) (laughs) there you go the math was so straightforward they could use slide rules because calculators had not been invented yet right right
0: (laughs) yeah not ones that anybody could use conveniently but yeah Yeah. right so so there, there you have that. And it's interesting to me. I, I, I recently, I think I'm going to do an episode on on this movie. Uh, um, uh, The movie Arrival has oh, this yeah, alien yeah. species, right? And there is a point at which it's such a subtle detail, but clearly a thinking person did this, where they're, they're trying to collaborate at first a little bit in a limited way. By they, I mean the different military groups. And mm-hmm. the, I think it's the Brits or the Aussies say that um, – they found out that the, the aliens don't respond to algebra. And the American physicist, he says, okay, so you found that they, they can't do algebra. What does that tell you? He, he dismisses it. In fact, the yeah, very yeah. point is yeah, yeah. that this yeah. is a nonlinear species. Right. They yeah. are. It's as if they evolved to see the world in complexity terms radically different from ours it's like a throwaway detail but i i delighted in that little yeah, detail yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah so yeah. then the other extreme of course is if you have so this is the highly ordered and that's where really physics comes and then you mm-hmm. have the highly disordered but we just do statistical mechanics and so at these extremes you can do things using a kind of standard models and standard ways right. of thinking but right. then we
1: realize we left ourselves out we left where we live right, right. and and exactly and it, And to do to develop those theories, to develop those mathematical approaches, like I said, it required iterative processing. You had to do the same thing over and over again. um, And you needed a computer to do that. You couldn't possibly do this by hand. You wouldn't get very far in Mm -hmm. 10 years. You wouldn't get very far. Yeah. And um, by exploring those kind of iterative processes, uh, chaos was stumbled upon. Um, uh, Benoit Mandelbrot. Uh, discovered fractals, fractal geometries, and he was um, he was interested in measuring the coastline of Britain. Um, you can draw a line around it in a map, and you think, okay, that's the coast, the length of the coastline of Britain. But if you go in closer, well, there are these little bays and stuff, so you'd have to. It's actually longer than we think. Mm-hmm. And if you go in closer, well, there's actually little coves and stuff. And the more you go in, the more gets revealed and the coastline gets longer and longer and longer. How does, what is that? What's going on here? And it turned out um, to, to map to things in the natural world and, and things in a semi-natural world like economies. Um, and, uh, but as you said, that's, that still only got us part way what I what I kind of like about complexity and this is kind of how Jane got into it too. Uh, complexity theory started really because of an early video game um, called the Game of Life. Um, this is chapter two <laughs> um John Conroy and he um, he devised this game where you have a grid and you have squares that are dark And those are, uh, or this was early computer screens that were green. So an on square was bright green and an off square was dark. And each turn of the game, what each square would be on or off depended on what its neighbors were doing. And if there were too many neighbors that were on, then that square within that would turn off because it's too crowded. Um, But if there's nothing nearby, it would stay on because, oh, it's kind of lonely. Um, People started playing with this because when you set the game going, you'd start off with, you'd put in your starting pattern of on squares and off squares. And most of the time, whatever pattern you start with, it just disappears. The whole thing dies within a few turns. Some of them though become stable. So if you have like a two by two square of on cubes, every turn, according to the rules, those four stay on and everything else stays off. So you just have this cube. Um, But then you got some that created these moving patterns that went on and on and on and seemed to initially, and it turned out to be true that they go on. Yes. (laughs) So there's some, yes. And then you get to something like this where it actually looks biological. And this is one panel of, of this particular running of, of the game. It grows, it moves. Um, you have things that fly across the screen. So it's, it's got this aspect of magic and, um, He was looking, he was working in a um, MIT computer lab as a, you know, just as a, uh, for the psych department at MIT, I think it was, Um, because he just had a job as a programmer and he could work late at night, which is when he liked to be working and no one was around. And he suddenly felt uh, a chill up his spine, like he was being watched that someone had come into the room. So he turned around to look and there was nobody in the room. And then he saw the game of life, which he had set going on the computer screen. And he realized there's something alive about this, actually alive. And he went to the window and looked out over Boston and intuited that the way humans were moving to create the city in the dark, the way he was seeing it, the traffic patterns, the the lights in the buildings, etc., was the same thing as what was going on in the game of life. So, um, what it turned out as you, as you said, we have ways to describe perfect order really easily, and complete randomness. Chaos um, allowed us to describe a kind of a new kind of order called chaotic systems. And it turns out that if you move um, in a mathematical sense across the domain from perfect order into chaos or from chaos into perfect order, at the boundary, at the edge of chaos, that's where complex systems arise. Yeah, right. And that is where life happens. Yeah. Um, uh, One uh, author, um, Roger Lewin, I think it was, um, writing about chaos said that... um, Complexity was sort of um, the place where chaos and order were pulling at each other. And out of that tension, this information-rich space that's ever-evolving, adaptive, creative, um, arises. Or it and it doesn't pushing arise in. because it's, someone planned it. It just right. arises because that's how the universe works.
0: Right. It but isn't...
1: Isn't the, isn't it that uh,
0: in Hebrew, the Bible is that it says that God made Eve to be against Adam, but not in conflict, the againstness of two dancers, right? It is to be... Um, I,
1: I understand what to, you're saying, but the Hebrew is not... That, it depends on which translation you're using. Yes, right, right. It doesn't quite carry that... that uh, Meaning quite that, yeah. Know, so. but,
0: but in the, it's but, even so; yeah. it stands because why they're not necessarily pulling; they're embracing. There, the idea yeah. is yeah. that they're they're pushing; they're leaning the way uh-huh. two tango dancers lean, in in an againstness that is positive, not in conflict. Because yeah. Yeah. if one dancer leaves, the the the, uh-huh. the, the other falls down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So th- then, at this place, we find that. A, a life is emerging yeah. at this weird edge state. And then this too is almost like a fractal in the sense that when we go out into nature, we find that edge places are places of activity. The place right. where a rip- yeah. riparian corridor meets the forest, the place where right. a meadow... Right.
1: Right. right, The most diversity is where two ecosystems meet each other. Yeah. Exactly. And, and I could then take that idea because with... What chaos brings to complexity, one might say, is that you can find it at every scale. It looks different at the quantum level than at the cellular level than at the social level. Mm -hmm. But the same basic rules apply. Mm -hmm. And so when I was reading, when I was learning about complexity and reading about this edge effect, um, where two systems meet each other, that's where the diversity happens. I realized that describes something I see in liver biopsies as part of my clinical practice. I'm pointing at my microscope. Um, and so could write an article about how this functions at the cellular level where you have regions of an organ that meet each other and the activity of the organ happens at that meeting point point. Mm-hmm. and the regenerative possibilities in the case of the liver are what happened at that meeting point. And, and no one had ever written about that in that way before i'm not sure anyone has written about it that way since but um but that's the intriguing thing that wherever you look you find this stuff mm-hmm. and once you see it um you can't really unsee it
0: mm-hmm. yeah
1: and that, when i get there there are a lot of I get a lot of positive response from the book. Uh, mm-hmm. People have said very nice things, and one of the things that keeps coming up over and over again um, is, "Oh, now that you showed this to me, I can't stop seeing." Um, in a good way, mm-hmm. and um, the other the other thing that that surprised me um, is the the second most frequent comment is that the book let leaves people hopeful and um, if I had set out to write a book to give people hope <laughs> I, I couldn't possibly have done it but there's something about understanding the world working in this way that leaves people hopeful and that there are always possibilities for creation creativity adaptation and um, as well as great dangers, uh, there's always inherent in the mathematics is that there will sometimes be mass extinction events, you know, whether it's, um, uh, you know, what were happening, what's happening, you know, take climate change and the mass extinction events we're literally living through now, or there are diseases where a part of the body just like fails. It's the same kind of thing. But even those always make way for new creativity and new life. Yeah. If the asteroid hadn't hit and wiped out the dinosaurs, it's no consolation for the dinosaurs, I'm sure, but that's what a lot of mammals do. When we think about European culture, we think about and things like the Renaissance, um, which we think of with pride and amazement and... Uh, you know, this is a great pinnacle of what humans can do, but it was the Black Death that potentiated that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Out of out of the die-off of a significant portion of the population came new circumstances that gave rise to the Renaissance. Mm-hmm. So, life happens, and it's very complex. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, but once you see it, um, it's easier, I think, to. F- to learn how to feel oneself as part of that larger flow. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I say this in the book at the end, that um, none of these words in this book, none of these concepts, nothing I just said, is actually that helpful, other than to point to the possibility that one can experience the world in a way that reflects this, which isn't our habitual way of experiencing the world.
0: That's very key, isn't it? Yeah. And the question is how we're going to adapt. I mean, for one thing, th- there are a lot of implications that we could um, question here. But what you just touched on, people in California, uh, among other places, have really not wrestled with this fact that that the way that forests think, we could say, okay, to the extent that there's an ecology of mind, mm-hmm. it involves, by necessity, high intensity fire, mm-hmm. at, at least yeah. sometimes. Yeah, And our current approaches are to avoid high-intensity fire at all costs. I mean, even indigenous people, of course, they were able to have low-intensity fire in some places, but mm-hmm. vast areas of what we now call California would have burned intensely.
1: Right. And right. how is it that As we part live? part of how the ecosystem restored itself. It needed and it. Recovery. And
0: in fact, yeah. when we were talking about places of highest uh, biodiversity and biological activity, those burn spots, especially the high-intensity right, ones, right, become right. the most active places in the whole forest
1: Yeah, as, yeah, they're, yeah. as they're coming yeah.
0: back. So I, I can't... Do you think we can... Look at, look at that kind of almost psychotic state. The human being wants to be one way. The way nature actually works is not that way. What are the possibilities for our coming together, right? I mm-hmm. mean, what do you... Yeah. How, how, how do we navigate that?
1: And can we? I mean, one of the... So one of the things that's also inherently true um, about all complex systems and is sort of inescapable is that there's always some degree of randomness in the system.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, again, thinking of an ant colony, if there's total randomness, no ant is paying attention to any other ant, there ain't going to be a colony. No. It's just going to be ants <laughs> running all over the place. Yeah, no. If there's too little randomness um, that an ant stumbles this way instead of that way and crosses this pheromone path instead of bumping into that sugar cube. Um, if there's not enough randomness, then the system can't find another way to organize itself to explore another way of being if um, the environment changes. Mm-hmm. So you need this, What what's ref, one word phrase for it is quench disorder. You need this low level randomness low-level unpredictability in, um, in a complex system. And what this allows is what uh, a friend and, and mentor of mine, um, Stuart Kaufman, one of the founders of complexity theory, he talks about there being sort of around the present moment um, of any complex system, there's an array of adjacent possibles a cloud of adjacent possibles. It's not an infinite array. There aren't infinite possibilities for what can happen in the next moment. But there isn't one single thing in the next moment because that's what a machine does. It's always the same thing. Mm. It's a limited array of alternate possibilities. And there's no predicting which of those will become the centerpiece for the next moment. Mm -hmm. It depends on how everything's interacting with everything else. And so inherently life is unpredictable.
0: Hmm.
1: The only you can't make things happen in a machine like way because life isn't machines. Bodies aren't machines. Part of the the problem in our culture is that with Newtonian mechanics, with the Industrial Revolution, the great um, the, the most common metaphors for living things became mechanical things. Um, But those don't adapt. They can't because the (laughs) next moment is always determined by the function of the machine. Um, And some of those alternate possibilities, where they'll lead, you can't predict either. Some of them may lead to a mass extinction event. Some of them may lead to an extraordinarily different way of organising and we may be on the cusp of such a thing. I'd like, I would hope, I would like to think that we could find a way to do that humanity collectively mm-hmm. without having to go through our own mass extinction event. Um, not sure. Mm-hmm. But um, friends of mine who are um, politically pessimistic um I always point out to them that for everything that went the wrong way, and I don't care what side you're talking about, um, that went the wrong way in an unexpected fashion, things can go the right way in an unexpected fashion. The world, we are living on the knife edge of possibilities, and we can tilt this way towards creativity and adaptation, or this way to chaos or rigid order. Um which, you know, leads to demise. But we're on that knife edge, and we can't know. And that means I'm not particularly optimistic or pessimistic. I'm just interested and fascinated and kind of excited to see, well, what will the next moment hold?
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, there, is there, there's something here, though, in terms of trying to think about how we would think, because there's one level of saying look we we don't know because the the unexpected is built in and uh there are connections that we can't even perceive yet and so on mm-hmm. okay but that's doesn't mean that there isn't say a more skillful way forward versus a less right, skillful right, way forward right, right. right. And, and, and
1: and and so where i find that using complexity uh-huh. um, is that as i said there are these basic ways things interact, which foster creativity. And I enumerate them in the book. One is this limited disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, There are three others. So it's only four rules. But if you look at any system and think in terms of those four rules, you can tweak the system to foster the best functioning in each of those domains. And that increases the likelihood of the creative adaptive response. So, Mm -hmm. More interactions are more creative than fewer interactions. More ants are creative than than fewer ants are. And you look at an ant colony of 25 ants and you get some simple self-organization. Um, and I know because I ordered an ant farm to watch them personally. And with 25 ants, you get tunnel digging, you get food lines, and you get a little cemetery where they put the any ant that dies. If you have 250 ants, you get significantly more complexity because you have more ants and you have more diversity of interactions.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: 2,500, still more. In human terms, a village is not a city, is not a megalopolis. Mm-hmm. And if you put each ant in a little silo, there's no self-organization either. So how can you uh, tweak a, a human system in this case Um into having greater diversity of interactions. Now, you could say the internet is that. But on the other hand, Not necessarily. you can have too much. Yes. And then we get into uh, rule number two, which is negative versus positive feedback loops. Mm-hmm. Do you want me to... To dance around this stuff for a little bit.
0: Let's. Well, okay. What? What? I was weighing that before that I
1: jump off. I'll. You can redirect.
0: Well, no, because the question is no. I. On the one hand, okay. We could. We could state the four principles. Let's state them and then come back because because okay. I think already we have a question that we can raise there and at each one there are questions to raise. So let's say oh, yeah. we, we've you. got we've got that one. So first, okay. there's numbers matter, and if you if you have too few, you're not going to get complex behavior in the positive sense. And the second okay. one is that negative feedback loops prevail.
1: Right. And so a feedback loop is like an air conditioner that temperature goes up, air conditioner turns on, temperature That's right. Comes down, temperature air conditioner turns off. Yeah. So it's not negative as in bad, it's negative in that it's it's setting a homeostatic yeah. um an oscillating safe zone in which life can happen. And if you think everything in our bodies oscillates, nothing is still. The only still thing is a dead thing. Yeah. Um, our appetites go up and down. We have circadian rhythms for sleep-wake cycles, et cetera, et cetera. Positive feedback loops, feedback on themselves, but it would be like a heater that, uh, when the room becomes warm, the heater turns on more, and the hotter the room gets, the hotter the heater, the higher the heater turns up. Mm-hmm. You can have those in a in a living system. Uh, think of when we have fevers. Um, suddenly your temperature goes up, and that's actually helpful because it revs up your immune system metabolically so you can fight off the infection. But then negative feedback loops come in to bring it under control again. Um, But if they predominate, then the system may demonstrate for a while some self-organization, but then it becomes energy expending, um, non-creative, non-adaptive, And eventually burns itself out. And then we're talking about things like cancer. We're talking about economic bubbles. I think we're talking about social media. Um, It's an overabundance of positive feedback loops. People my age who remember the birth of the Internet often look back fondly at the early days. It was fairly unregulated, so it was a little bit wild. But there wasn't so much going on that... um, there were still social norms within the behaviors that acted as negative feedback loops that allowed communities to start to start to arise, yeah, but then with things like facebook and and subsequent social media things, it favors positive feedback loops mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. that's what we see socially now as a result of that, yeah, so looking at this rule, if you want to fix what's wrong with social media, you could say, "Oh, we need some regulation." That's not control. That's fostering a healthy, creative, adaptive environment that's open-ended. Um, you can say the same thing about economic planning. The third rule is, um, what's the third rule? Well, it depends on where you want
0: to go, local, or do you want to go to randomness? Oh,
1: right, right, right. So it, things can look like someone planned the ant colony, someone designed the human body. Yeah, Um but it's actually happening at the local. Ants are simply interacting with the trails of other ants. Mm-hmm. We're not interacting. I don't design the city. I interact with people all the time. And out of that, the city arises. Yeah. So there's no global sensing um, yeah. that decides which way the system can go. We can think there's global sensing. Um, someone, you know, whether it's a dictator or the president of the United States, They think they're monitoring the whole thing. But the fact is that monitoring is never complete. There's always stuff happening in the corners, at least, that Mm -hmm. you can't predict, you can't control. That's where revolutions happen. That's where political systems change over. Mm -hmm. Um, And for the person who's in that seat, what's their experience? they're not looking at the whole thing. They're experiencing the people who come in and out of their office with information. They -hmm. simply have access to greater webs of information flowing through, but it's still local level interactions on the phone by an email face to face. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's it. If, if you, so if you are in the midst of something, whether it's um, a medical illness or a societal dysfunction Um, or a terrarium that you're trying to set up and something is off kilter. These are the things to look at to figure out how do you modulate them? Mm -hmm. Um, Is it that we need more diversity or we need less? We have too much randomness or do we have too little? Um, If we have too much, how can we build regular self-regulating negative feedback loops that help it restore to, to creativity and adaptation? Mm -hmm. Um, those kind of things. Yeah. Well,
0: there are some – then we could ask what are, what are some of the nuanced implications here. So um, I think it, it, intuitive to capitalists, they understand that the importance of mass. They understand that what matters for them, they need more workers and they need more consumers. So it's very natural for Bezos and Musk to argue that we have to have larger populations they could claim, hey, we're just being good complexity theorists. When you have more human beings, you get more Mozarts and Einsteins and Neil theses, and they're going to do more good work. But but if we don't notice that, that there's a couple of issues, ant complexity can't shift by, or ant, ant numbers uh, can't shift by themselves. They're always in interaction. And mm-hmm. the question is uh, whether or not, first of all, human interaction should be measured only in terms of other human interaction or whether it must also have a cross-species and inter-ecological right, relatedness right. right so that we think I mean, better we in the wild right we yeah. think better in the wild than we do yeah. in new york city i right, know, right.
1: That, you know we're healthier we're, we're more mentally stable right. Right when we take a walk in the woods than when we are walking in right. new york city yes yeah
0: absolutely so, so then there's okay. we have to and reflect about that don't we we have to ask right. what that means
1: and Folks like Bezos and Musk, I think they're thinking in terms of machines. They're thinking of human organization as machine-like things. Look at the way uh, Amazon constructs its human interactions in its centers. And they're they're toxic to human psychology and to human health. We know that. You work in an Amazon distribution center, you've got a limited time there because it's going to make you sick. It's gonna break
0: your it's body. It's trying again.
1: to make yeah. people function like machines. That Henry Ford brought brought this in. He yeah. had other problems, but that was one of them. Yeah. Um, we're not supposed to. The, we're biological systems. We're not meant to be that way. And that would be an example, I think, of rule number four. You're squeezing down the array of possibles for the people in your workforce, mm-hmm. so that they just are that doing too. the same thing over that and too. over again. No options. And that means they're not going to be creative on behalf of your company either. Right. Uh, some of the people interested in the book have been people on the the business side. Yeah. Who want to talk to me. I've, I've You know, I, I've been talking to some large scale corporate groups, mostly about sustainability, but to some extent about, well, how do you foster creativity in your workforce?
0: Mm hmm.
1: Because you don't want a machine. How do you make it? How do you make your company a living thing that can actually respond to all the different things out there? You know, can we get rid of capitalism? Well, we might have a mass extinction event, and that's the end of capitalism. But is it possible that we can adjust it in some ways to allow for the interactions with the global ecosystem, like you're talking about?
0: Well, keep in mind, we don't have capitalism now. And, and the extent to which we have forces that are capitalistic, they abhor negative feedback loops. Right. Capitalism right. itself right. abhors any right. negative feedback right. loop. Not right. only that, but it is in principle built upon, I own, you do. I get the quarterly report and drive for the profit. It right. seems that it is the most... Um, illogical system from the standpoint of complexity that we could have right. and that what makes yeah. much more sense is that the workers should own the, the means of production since they make it and they're having the local interactions and that, that they should mostly draw from the local environment to make what they make we, we right. can't make anything I
1: mean right. there's nothing there's
0: I'm, nothing that we can make that we use, we take it from everywhere in non-local yeah. but not non-local
1: in the quantum sense but, but just extra local right, right, right. But you know, but then you have—I don't think it's an accident that everyone has who has tried to do a Marxist system on a national scale, winds up tending towards autocracy too. So there's something there that's off kilter as well. Um, it may be that you simply have to act local,
0: right? It could but, be but as there. simple
1: as you know when you're talking about humans and these large aggregates, they tend to either. Over rigidity or explosive energy expending waste, yes. and maybe, but that's the nature of human society, and the planetary adjustment is to have fewer of us, which forces right. us to be local.
0: Which <laughs> forces us to be local, right? But also there too, I mean, this is there's a difference between um, some kind of like uh, central command experiment, like they tried in Russia, and and just saying that that workers should own the means of production. I mean so if if that is the anti-capitalist stance that if if I if I work in the plant uh, then you know right. it should belong right. to me. Right. But yeah. so that's different but then it also does make this profound like what a crazy demand that makes on us if if that's yeah. the rational thing. Because there's something else about see I like the way you emphasize obviously when you emphasize bottom up interactions. This is a very strong warning about any form of tyranny and most of us face most of us haven't gotten our minds around the fact that we don't have a truly democratic society first of all that that Mm -hmm. there there are real issues but we could have democracy right but then even if we had like a functioning democracy we would still be under tyranny eight hours a day most people because they would go to work and be told what to do and have these limited things right so in order to get real real responsiveness to your four rules. We'd have to have actual democracy politically and actual democracy at work. So there wouldn't be a place where we didn't have democratic control. So that's, uh, yeah. that, that seems rather important. Oh, go ahead.
1: It's tricky because you leap to – my language in the book is top-down, and you leap to autocracy. Um. There are top down, local, right?
0: You mean yeah. your language in contrast to to all interactions are bottom up and local,
1: right? So, okay, um, there are systems within our bodies where you can describe it as a top down thing. Um, uh, kidneys are monitoring how much water you have in your body, and they decide how much to excrete versus not excreting. Yeah, um, and and so that's kind of a top down. Thing from the point of view of the kidney. Yeah. Um, when you look at unregulated economies, they yeah. don't do well. They tend to explode. Um, so what you need there is some kind of higher up thing that can regulate, that can bring in some regulation in a determined fashion. And that's not always achievable necessarily in the wisest way by a democracy. The... the but the other way to think about this bottom-up, top-down um, business is uh, a word I introduced from Arthur Kessler in the second section of the book, hmm. um, holarchy. Right. We we humans think of themselves in hierarchies. Hmm. Um, there's a top and there's a bottom, yes. and you can and we map them as there's a top and. They branch, and there's a lot here at the bottom, and they all feed up into this one thing at the top. So top-down, bottom-up. But in fact, if you were to look at this from above, all you see is an array of nodes with interactions between them. They're all on the same scale. There's no bottom-up. There's no top-down. They're all in the game. The question is, what other nodes is each node connected to? How are they passing information around? Mm-hmm. How too many connections, too fewer connections, and and again, I, I, I wonder whether is it, uh, can you have a human society this large that doesn't fall into one of those two errors that that leads to total rigid control that's non-adaptive or everything falls apart and but human societies on the smaller scale who our cultural history do better i don't know if that's the case but the control isn't always bad too much control is bad too mm. little control is
0: it depends mountain, on where chaos. it comes from. It's
1: literal chaos.
0: Sure. Yeah. It depends on where it comes from, right? Because yes. you yeah. use the example of unregulated, or you you use the phrase unregulated economy, but that's there's a contradiction there because if you have economy that isn't regulated by something, the question is what. Right. Right. So, so, yeah. so yeah, their yeah, yeah. the yeah. issue. You could have it regulated by ecological conditions, which is right. what right. you know old school economies would have been. Right. Indigenous right. economies, exactly. right? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. but then what I, I like that you brought this up because I also appreciated this. I wanted to, add to to bring this up that in one could read your your text and and have come away w- without thinking of the places in which there there is top down control. But what I mean is more. Uh, okay, top down is a sensitive thing because anytime we start to talk about the whole influencing the parts, mm-hmm. we yeah. can easily go into territory that makes some scientists uncomfortable. But I'm not uncomfortable with that. I mean, I think that this is right. important. It seems right. so. There and are two. Issues.
1: I'm a scientist, but I'm not uncomfortable. With right. It. Yeah.
0: So there are two issues. One is that we seem to have if you look at human society the, the the dominant culture has affected everything and so essentially the, the dominant culture is the functional uh, a kind of thing driving the insanity that we have, right? Mm-hmm. And it would be as if you had a thermostat. You, we, we use the you know Bateson loved the example of the thermostat. You've got a thermostat, mm-hmm. and it's supposed to be set to a certain bias, seventy degrees. Okay, so the, it's it's mm-hmm. summer. You want to feel cool, maybe sixty-eight. You set it yeah. at sixty-eight, and it should be that when the room gets up to seventy, it turns on. The air starts coming on. It hits sixty-eight and Roll sixty-seven. It, yes, it drops now. We have a situation in which the blowing of the air changed the setting, mm. right? Because the parts don't want to respond to the whole,
1: and, and right. And, <laughs> and my phrase for that is the positive feedback loop. And exactly, the right. parts are not responding to the whole. There's no self-regulation of the system as a whole. Yes, it's just stoking itself.
0: Yes. So somehow and- we have to train ourselves to respond to that.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. And are we trainable?
0: Are we we'll trainable? Find <laughs> we'll find out. Well, so then a related issue we can come come back to that because I think here too the philosophical traditions have a lot to say. But then the other question is, what about the profound importance for non-local interactions in our life and in the paradigm-busting science that we have now? So, for instance, um, Dean Radin's work, where mm-hmm. he shows that yeah. a non-local interaction with a quantum device registers a change, or synchronicity, very simple yeah. example of the rupture of the barriers of time, space, and identity. So non somehow there's a non-local presence that some indigenous cultures and even spiritual traditions that we can reach out and touch today cultivate that importance of practicing in relation uh, in a non-local way to, to relate so, to reality.
1: Yeah, and, and this kind of brings us around to the notion of boundaries, which is Mm. the whole middle section of the book yeah. and um and and this was kind of once Jane and I got talking mm-hmm. um it became clear that we had this you know hierarchy there's the word again it's hard to avoid but she's telling me about ants forming colonies as a way of understanding how cells form ants mm-hmm. um bodies which in this case are ants so we've got one complex system made of other complex systems, yeah, which in turn are made of other complex systems. so what are the implications of that and and this was actually um where uh, where the science and spirituality for me met okay. um th- this story didn't get in the book um one of the things um that I note in the book, in in the author's note at the beginning, is I've always had spiritual interests, um, started off uh, very squarely in a um, small C conservative, actually big C conservative too, uh, Jewish culture, um, with a solid devotional practice, going to synagogue and, you know, doing all that stuff, and studying texts. Um, And I thought about going to rabbinical school for a while. Um, And then I had the science thing. And um, for a while, I wanted to be a particle physicist. For a while, I wanted to be an astronomer. Um, I ran out of options. And to some extent, that's what led me to medical school. Um, But so those two things were there. And our culture tells us that you can't hold both at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I actually, I had a, a... an Orthodox Jewish cousin who um, was trying to convince me that uh, the world was 5,000 plus years old and there was no such thing as evolution and God just hid dinosaur bones to fool us, um, that kind of thing. And I was like, I don't need to bring these things into one compartment of my brain. And I described it this way. I have them in separate compartments and I don't care whether they talk to each other or not. (laughs) Now, to some extent, that was a bit of denial. (laughs) But I was fine with that, maybe because I'm a Gemini. So one half of me did this, the (laughs) other half did the other. But when I talked to Jane, um, I started thinking about how cells self-organize into bodies. Hmm. And at some point, astonishingly, this hadn't occurred to me before, that I was thinking about my own body. I wasn't thinking just about the mouse, the mice in whom I, we were doing these experiments. And I don't like doing animal research. I don't do it anymore. Um, or the, the what I see in human tissues under my microscope in my clinical practice all the time. This is happening in my body. And so I was walking around thinking, what am I? Am I a body or am I this flock of cells, this colony of cells? Mm-hmm. And... Um, and it was very much like a Zen koan. I just could not let go of it. Mm. I, I wasn't thinking of it in those terms. It just had become that. And I was walking down the street um, and came to the corner and there was a do not walk sign. And so I stopped walking and body yourselves, body yourselves, body yourselves, body yourselves. The light changed. People stepped off the curb. I tried to step off the curb, but my leg had become a community of cells. And I couldn't move. And then I realized I'm a body and I could start moving again. Mm. Some weeks after that, I was at the Zendo, my Zen place of Zen stuff. (laughs) And um, uh, I was the opener on Thursday mornings back then. And sometimes, you know, early in the morning, there was no one there back in those days. Um, the, The group was smaller. And so I was sitting alone in the Zendo. And, um, I had set up the altar, there was incense, and I'm meditating over here at this end, and I'm not doing my Zen practice; I'm body yourselves, body yourselves, body yourselves and um, I looked up and I saw I always get c- choked up at. It. <laughs> <laughs> Um <laughs> He's for Clempt. Talk amongst yourselves. I mean, exactly. <laughs> Talk amongst yourselves. Yeah, exactly <laughs> It's okay. I, I looked up and I saw the stick on the altar turning into the smoke. Yeah. And I realized stick or smoke, body or cells. It depends on your perspective. Yeah. And neither is correct. Both are correct. Equally. Neither is more correct than the other. Whether something appears to be a thing versus a phenomenon arising from interactions of smaller things depends on how you're approaching the system. And that's what the Buddha, Buddha meant by the emptiness of inherent existence. <laughs> oh my God. I understand emptiness, <laughs> but I had a moment where me and the incense, there was no separation there and mm-hmm. it, it was a direct experience of this. So exploring that in Buddhist terms Mm -hmm. is partly what led to the book too. But the other implication of body as cells is that at the level of, at this uh, level of perspective, I stop here at my skin. Mm -hmm. And if we were in the room together, you'd be over there, I'd be over here and there would be a gap between us. But if when you came into my office, I greeted you with a handshake or a hug, We would exchange microbiome, um, the bacteria and a few other living things that live on the surface of our skin, as well as through all the crevices of our bodies. And we now know um, that if you look at the microbiomes of people sharing, let's say, an apartment and the microbiomes of their pets, within a very short time, you have a single microbiome, a single living system of bacteria that has little islands that think of themselves as humans and dogs and cats. If dogs and cats think of themselves as dogs and cats, that I don't No, They think of themselves as humans. But <laughs> so, um, so at the cellular level, where are your boundaries? At least as wide as the spaces you inhabit and the people you encounter on a regular basis. Well, are cells inherently existent? No, they're empty of inherent existence too, because if you go down to the nanoscopic scale, you've just got molecules floating in water. There's no cell there. It dissolves out of view the way the human body dissolves into cells when you change your perspective. At the molecular level, what are your boundaries? Simplest version I can give is we breathe out carbon dioxide taken up by the plants, which breathe out oxygen, which we take in. At the molecular level, we're contiguous with the entire biomass of the planet through molecular exchange. At the atomic level, what are our boundaries? You can, We can think of ourselves, and we habitually do, as these beings that move around on top of this rock we call Earth. But equally true, um, inarguably equally true, you can think of... The Earth as a bunch of atoms that in three and a half billion years figured out how to self-organize its atomic substance into humans um, that think of themselves as separate because there's no atom in our bodies that we didn't drink, eat or breathe from the planet. We are the planet. And this leads us to uh, Lovelock and and Margulies and, and the Gaia hypothesis. They were talking in complexity terms again before complexity existed. And then you're down in the quantum realm, once you go below atoms, in the realm of non-locality. Where are your boundaries? The universe. There is no outside. There is no separation. Mm -hmm. It's all differentiation within one single, I would say, living, and we haven't gotten to consciousness yet, but conscious thing that is the universe. The universe isn't an empty box in which we live. We are the moment-by-moment expression of the universe exploring itself. And all those things are true in every moment. But the nature of the human mind is we need to pick a perspective. The Buddha couldn't both be in samsara and nirvana at the same time. (laughs) He could move back and forth really quickly and skillfully. (laughs) But you have to take a stance. You have to choose a view. But you have to always remember all those other views al- also exist. And part of um, the problem we have in our culture, and this goes back to the one of the very first things you talked about, about how we need scientists who can think in terms of systems and interact with other people in other fields, mm-hmm. sy- you know, in a system uh, kind of way, as opposed to digging down into the details. You need both. The reason I can do what I'm doing is because there have been people who have dug down into such detail that they could figure out quantum physics. Yeah. Um, But one... But you always need the other. Yeah. And you always have to remember that that other exists. And for me, what 20 years of thinking about complexity theory um, has done, one of the things is... It's brought me into this habit when I'm interacting, when I'm observing a system, whether it's a social system, a political system, or something, you know, on my slides in terms of human disease, and um, and I'm puzzled by it. I think, well, what other points of view might there be? Mm-hmm. There are other points of view. There always are that are complementary, and I look for those. Yeah. I'm in the habit of looking for those, and most people don't want to do that. They, want, they have their view and they want to stick with their view.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so, I mean, that's one side note, but then also to connect to it uh, another point, maybe Buddha is the one who lives that paradox. I mean, maybe that's the difference between a Buddha and a regular person. And it's interesting the way you, you, I mean, you've got Dharmakaya in there, what Buddhist philosophy refers to as Dharmakaya, the reality body, and the old uh, teaching is, we we do not say there is only one Buddha, we do not say there are many Buddhas, because somehow Buddha must mean that you're, you're, you're in that kind of non-dual si- sort of situation, which right, is par- right. totally paradoxical from our point of view, yeah. so that well, Nirvana yeah. and Samsara are one. Right,
1: right, right? exactly. Yeah. But from this perspective, I mean, that's yeah. the thing, yeah. when I give... Talks about this stuff in Buddhist groups. Yeah. Well, I, I had this really marvelous experience. Um, I presented this stuff at Menla Retreat Center back Hello. in 2006. That's great. Um, and it was a Tibet House sponsored thing um, about integrative medicine and optimizing health yeah. and stuff like that. So I was invited to speak about the stem cell stuff yeah. that I was doing. Um, But the guy who was organizing it, Bill Bichelle, who's now become a really dear friend and a close collaborator and is kind of a genius. He's a medical. He's a a bio anthropologist. I'm not sure what he calls himself these days, but. um, He wanted me to talk about this stuff, too, Hmm. and so I gave a talk on it and um, Gaelic Rinpoche, who is a fairly high llama um, born in Tibet. Uh, founded the Jewel Heart uh, uh, school here. And um, he was there. And His Holiness the Dalai Lama was on his way, but he wasn't there for my talk. I was really disappointed. I've been I've been trying to get him this stuff. Yeah. Uh, someone's going to give him my book soon, so I don't know if he'll read it. But but Gaelic Rinpoche was in the audience and he slept through my talk. Oh, that's and I a good was sign, like, man. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And I got a really good response to the talk. You know, everything I'm talking about now, this was the talk. And I sat down, and the person next to me said, that was terrific. And I said, yeah, but Gaelic Rinpoche slept through it. I really wanted to see what he might think of this stuff. And she said, oh, no, that doesn't mean he wasn't listening. He was notorious when he was a, a kid and, you know, had to memorize all these texts, but he had memorized them over so many lifetimes, he could recite them while he was sleeping. So they would make him stand in a second story window. So he wouldn't sleep. And he even slept then um, and stayed and didn't fall and got through the, the whole lesson. And I was like, well, that's cool, but okay. <laughs> the next day I'm sitting in the lobby where there was Wi-Fi, checking my email and Gaelic Rinpoche comes in <laughs> and he comes over to me and he says, thank you. <laughs> And I said, thank you. <laughs> and he said, no, thank you. 2,500 years ago, the Buddha said many difficult things emptiness, interdependence, uh, you know, uh, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> the other things, too, that I, I can't speak English anymore. He said, 2,500 years ago, he said these complicated things. Today, you made them very simple. Thank oh, you.
0: That's so good. Cool. Yay!
1: <laughs> But, but that's the thing, this complexity view. Now, I can solve koans by thinking of them in complexity terms. But if I depend on that, I miss the direct experience that the koan is trying to lead me to.
0: Yes, that's right. Yeah,
1: And the moment in the zendo with the incense, that was an experience. That wasn't a concept. Yeah, right. I then stepped back from it and turned it into a bunch of concepts that I could extend to other Buddhist principles, and then Jewish mysticism, and then consciousness studies, etc. But that's the real question. Um, and that's sort of where I land in the book. How do you find a way to have the experience? My own practice and what I discuss most in the book is contemplative practices. Yeah. But there are people who get there through art practice, Whitman, as we were talking about before, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Um, I tried to get my mother to meditate for for years, and she she was not going to meditate. But I realized finally when I became old enough and mature enough that if you watched her light her Sabbath candles on Friday night, her practice was a devotional practice, and everything you needed to know about how she understood the nature of reality was there when she was doing that practice. Mm -hmm. She died in this extraordinary bliss bubble. Um And she was having this is what my next book is talking about what happened to her Um through that practice and probably a few minor strokes. um She began to perceive the world this way. There are people who get here through service. My husband claims to have no spiritual practice. But if you come to our house for dinner one day and you see how he prepares a meal. He's all about service. It's absolutely a spiritual practice. Yeah. And over, you know, we're approaching 40 years together, Gack. I see how that service, that practice of service has opened himself, has opened him to being, to having an experience of what the world is rather than what we're trained to think. Yeah. So there's, there's lots of, of ways out there. And that's the most important thing. But I think for people who believe that contemporary science and contemporary mathematics are the best way to understand the world, but then also simultaneously say that means that spiritual practices are forbidden, um, this is how contemporary math, contemporary science, actually necessarily leads us around to those spiritual insights, Indeed, yeah. They are not separate. They are not two.
0: Well, they can't and, be separated in the sense that it seems one of the big faults of uh, the way systems and complexity and ecological science get discussed, we are w- w- implicitly making a subject-object distinction. Mm-hmm, and we. Mm-hmm. it is a very different thing to think about complex systems than it is to do what we have to do, which is to be the fertile, vitalizing thinking of complex systems. And you can't get that without practices, and that's what they're from. I was thinking a little bit of Dogen, for instance, expressing Mm. some of this, where where he talks about perspective in the Mountains and Waters uh, Sutra. He says, The Blue Mountains devote themselves to the investigation of walking. The East mountain studies moving over the water. Hence, this study is the mountains' own study. Water practices and verifies water. Hence, there is a study of water, telling of water. We must bring to realization the road on which the self encounters the self. We must move back and forth along and spring off from the vital path on which the other studies and fully comprehends the other. In general, the way of seeing mountains and waters differs according to the type of being. And so there's this idea of not getting caught in perspective and understanding really why I think you were touching in your experiences that science has always been and must be life studying life. We have to right. understand that we are right. life studying yeah. life.
1: Right, right, and thus we there's and and mind studying mind. Yes. So so and. When that happens, there is ultimately no separation of subject and object
0: That's right. Yeah. You
1: can make artificial separations that are useful for certain practices. That's how we have antibiotics. yes, those are a good thing <laughs> but but we've lost as a culture, and there are reasons for this, which you know I, I I try to explore in the book, but as a culture, we have reified this idea that no separation and subject of object is the only way to come to knowledge of truth in the world. Yes. Um, quantum physics, though, did away with that. Yes. At the quantum level, there's no separation of subject and object. They're intimately intertwined. And you could say, well, mathematically we can do this. But um, no, it doesn't work in terms of mathematics either. And that's the story of Kurt Gödel, Gödel and his incompleteness theorems. Ultimately, there is no way to get pure objectivity to tell you what the world is because pure objectivity can't exist. It doesn't, right? We are life-studying life. We are mind-studying mind. And we're always going to be that.
0: Yeah, and that's yeah. part of the complexity revolution too. That's the recursiveness. And that's what's interesting yeah. about the need for spiritual practice is if there's recursiveness, if complexity shows us these feedback loops exist, then the quality of mind and insight that you take, that's, remember, the Buddha said, you know, when, uh, when, the, when the Brahman asked him, well, you know, you went out into the wilderness and became enlightened, and it really, that doesn't seem like the most conducive place, you know, it's a terrifying out there. There's tigers, there's mosquitoes, it's annoying, it's distracting, and Buddha said, well, yeah, any idiot can go into the woods, but I went with a mind of love. I went with a mind of compassion, with a mind of equanimity, so, so part of the education that complexity demands is to take care of the quality of being. Right, if right. science isn't an act yeah. of service, then already you might have a, a problem. If science right. isn't the furthering of the conditions of life, you have a problem. Right. There's no right. such thing as knowledge for its own sake. There is no for its own sake, right? Think about it. I
1: have to on that one. In Think part because in part because knowledge for its own sake is a particular Talmudic concept about the nature of study and I'm so locked into hearing that uh-huh. which isn't what you're talking about. No. But that's my uh-huh.
0: <laughs> um, Yeah, well that's that's different because that's about the non grasping after wisdom. Right. That's about right. the spiritual right. sacredness yes. of yes. knowing. Yes. But yeah. we are instrumental ultimately, right. when we seek knowledge for its own sake. And so it is to say that the scientist's activity must be seen as part of what they're already involved in. Complexity I think, I think. is a self-study.
1: Right, right, right. Yeah. No, I, I think that's completely spot on. And what I wonder is, because complexity can so easily be taught, if I can understand it, it's not that hard.
0: Same here, I say the same. If help other understand.
1: people. You know, it's just, it's not... Um, I gave this talk for fifth graders. My nephew wanted me to to talk about this to his fifth grade class. Yes. And um, so there were two fifth grade classes in his school. They had me in the last period of the day, and they brought both classes together. There were about 40 kids. And I gave my standard complexity talk. Didn't change anything. Had to explain a couple of words, but otherwise it was the same basic talk. The teachers had to call the parents to say they were holding the school buses because the kids were so excited and had so many questions. And questions ranging from my grandfather died, where did he go, Mm -hmm. to when I cut myself, why does my finger heal? Yeah, You know, you name it. And their minds sort of exploded. What if we taught this in third grade? Yeah. So that this is how people, like I said, people who read my book often say to me, I see it everywhere now. Right. What if you were seeing it everywhere like this when you were seven?
0: Yes. And that you understood what compassion was, because why don't we teach basic, basic, we tell kids to pay attention, but as William James pointed out, we don't don't have the education to tell them how you do that. Of course, we Mm -hmm. now know what James didn't, that we can teach them how to pay attention, but we don't. I mean, I used to get the same question in universities. Students would, you know, you teach them basic compassion practice and basic uh, practices for stabilizing attention, and they say, why didn't I learn this when I was in kindergarten? I should have known this. The right, two, right. it's like they have to come together. And Bateson wrote about this in, in the title of, of one of his books is Mind and Nature, a Necessary Unity. And then mm-hmm. in that book, he says, while well, I offer you the phrase, the pattern which connects as right. a synonym for right. that title. And he says, why do schools teach almost nothing of the pattern which connects? Is it the teachers know that they carry the kiss of death, which <laughs> which will turn it tasteless? And, and so they're wisely unwilling? Or, or is is it that they cannot teach anything of real life importance is that what the problem is and so he's asking that was like you say i mean he's thinking about this before complexity became cool he was in there asking um what is the patterning i sometimes say patterning instead of pattern because it's an activity he would have i think uh, accepted that but right it's not a thing right yeah yeah Yeah, the pattern
1: like the foot before and the foot behind in walking
0: there you go. Um, Stepping forward and backward at the same time. Yeah. That's what we're um, talking about, right? Isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Because the backward yeah. step and, is needed.
1: Right. And I'll tell you that a lot of the way these ideas developed for me was in the context of a community of artists and thinkers and scientists called the Lindisfarne Fellowship, ah, yes, which Ritzman so. was a founding member of. Francisco Varela um was, you know, who also founded the Mind and Life Institute with the Dalai Lama. Um, they were members of it before I got to participate in the group. But this way, Lynn Margulies was still very much alive and participating in the group this way. Mm-hmm. So as these ideas were entering my imagination, I was also sort of um, soaking in the kind of thinking informed by Bateson and Varela and Margulies, et cetera. Yeah. Which is all about um, cooperation and interaction, and um, it's not about competition. It's not about survival <laughs> of the fittest. It's right. you know, and it certainly isn't machine-like. And that's what Bateson is talking about. You know, I mean, one of the things he's drawing our attention to is machines are not the right language. Yeah. But it's the language our culture forces on us. And he was looking for the language that could take us out of that that model.
0: Yeah. And it's not easy.
1: No. Yeah. No. It, it, you it's... know, I mean, <laughs> it took a lot of years of Zen practice to prime me for that moment with the incense stick.
0: Right. Yeah. I didn't
1: just, I didn't wander into the Zendo, sit down with my cell body question and look up and see something. Yes. There was already, you know, um, yeah
0: yeah and so is there is there a way do you think of meditation now in some way in, in relationship I mean the activity of meditation is it that that one sits there for a long time in order to um essentially for random fluctuations of of mind to uh, allow one to stumble almost by chance into a certain st- state space so to to draw close to an attractor in other words mm-hmm. do we get drawn almost by accident to the attractors which are called samadhis or, or i mean how do you how do you think of me- the practice of meditation in terms of com- complexity
1: to be honest i don't
0: okay no that's because fine because
1: to um Until you ask it, I wouldn't say, oh, I made an active decision not to think about it Mm -hmm. that way. But I do have an instinct that if I turn my brain towards something to figure it out, then I'm introducing separation.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay.
1: And, And meditation, a contemplative practice, has not come easily to me. I'm not a natural for this because it's hard for me to get out of my analytical mind. Mm-hmm. It's why Zen has been a really important practice because its aim, its, its method is to take you out of your analytical mind in some respects.
0: Um, That's a funny thing for you to say, given that the way you arrived at your big insight was your analytical mind.
1: Yeah, I know. That would be
0: that would be the that would be what Bob Thurman would have said to you if you'd shared that story, right? <laughs> no, because no, he, I know, I he's know. very much about making good use of if it's properly used, yeah. right? Yeah. As opposed to yeah. spinning in circles.
1: Right. Yeah. But but, but but as I said, um it was the years of practice that set me up yeah. for having that moment. It took years of getting my analytical mind out of the way. Mm-hmm that prepped me for an analytical insight triggering an experiential insight.
0: Yeah, yeah. Somehow, And then I can
1: back away from that and then turned it into something useful for teaching. Right. So Gaelic Rinpoche can tell me I made <laughs> Buddhist principles simple. Um, what's, what's interesting, um, one experience I've had with this work uh, – I have presented it to Zen students in the middle of meditation retreats as Dharma talk, sometimes with the PowerPoint, even (laughs) doesn't look like a Dharma talk, but it's a Dharma talk. Um, and people have had awakening experiences during the talk or in the night after, Mm -hmm. um, and when this first started happening it was like gee i wish i could do that for myself um but it, it's an interesting question the the interplay of the contemplative practice and the analytical mind yeah um and and I, you know if i make a complete list of ways one can practice to encounter the true nature of reality i do think that Scientific analytic processes or legal study—that's a rabbinic path—can um, get you there too. So the mind can be used that way, uh, but for me, it, it it becomes more of a hindrance.
0: Yeah, well, it's an yeah. ecological thing, and it's a, on it depends on how we use the mind. You know, I think this mm-hmm. is a thing. I agree with Bob about Bob Thurman about this that the ways that we're used to using our mind in this culture are so narrow. Yeah, that we actually yeah. don't understand so so Nagarjuna's sense of the analytical mind especially within already the context whereas right. in Zen I mean so for instance a common a common meditation experience of of people in Southeast Asia in certain at, at least you know in certain anthropological studies of people is, is an experience that I myself have had too mm-hmm. and that is that you you pick up the cup and if you've really been practicing deeply you you somehow look at the cup and you see that it's a bunch of particles right Right, I mean, you just directly yeah, see right. that, right? right? And there are people who who can actually have a psychotic break at that, right? Because that, you like, so if you're unprepared for that, whereas th- this is, the, we're talking about a monastic context where everybody has been taught systems thinking, taught right. Right. these dynamics, and been trained to expect that that will happen. So their ana- analytical understanding of life prepare
1: them for an experience, right? And
0: yeah, yeah, yeah it's very yeah. different.
1: And it, it's interesting. I remember. Um, a Zen teacher, a famous Zen teacher, um, who I met at a Zen retreat, and I was in one private interview with them in the Zen fashion. And um, he said something about um, it's the nature, it's inherent in the nature of, a, I prefer to say an awakening experience, an enlightenment moment, whatever. Yeah. Um, a Ken show. Okay. To be blissful. Mm-hmm. And I thought, why would that be? Hmm. And so I went to my teacher, Nkir Village Zendo, who I love. She's been my teacher for several decades. Yeah. Um, and she's my teacher for a whole bunch of reasons. And I trust her when I ask it. So I said to her, so, so and so said this, that it's always a blissful state. And she was like, but it's not always a blissful state. Some people become psychotic from it. <laughs> exactly yeah. as you said, yeah. because. What's your preparation for that experience? Yeah. Loss of self can be a terrifying experience.
0: Yes, yes. Well, um, Nagarjuna has that uh, line, right? Nagarjuna says that, that, that you teach, some people are taught basically ethical practices, some people are taught, but you teach only the highest student can receive what he calls the terrifying teachings of awakening. But, but remember, Bob Thurman's last book is Wisdom is Bliss. So he would say, sure, the state, if the state isn't bliss, it's not wisdom. That's what right, happened, right? Right, right. And
1: but and 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 that's a conversation I'd like to have with him actually now. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I I, I can't. Uh, it astonishes me that um, you know I'm a liver pathologist. That's my practice. That's yeah. my, and it's a and it's a practice of service. Yeah, I, I there aren't a lot of people who know how to look at liver biopsies and get meaningful information from them, maybe 120 in the world. And I'm one of them. Wow. And I trained a few of the others. Mm. And um, so that's, you know, that's my service work. But it was looking at those liver biopsies that led me to a little bit of a new thing of anatomy, which led me to some stem cell stuff, which led me to Jane Prophet, which, led me, you know, If your eyes are open, if you're practicing beginner's mind, and this is, I think, where Zen practice has benefited me and perhaps others through me, is Suzuki Roshi's thing about the mind of the beginner has many possibilities. The mind of the expert has few. Yeah. I became, I mean, you know, liver pathology, it's pretty effing, there's the word, specific. Yeah. (laughs) Um. Narrow, deeply yeah. focused. I really took a deep dive. But because I carry that trained tilt towards beginner's mind, mm-hmm. and in fact, in liver pathology, we're taught, don't know too much about the patient at your first look at the biopsy because you want to be unbiased. Mm. That's their way of saying you want to have beginner's mind. Yeah. And through that practice, that incredibly narrow, detailed, limited, siloed uh, piece of learning and, and scientific research turned into this. I think anything can be an entry point.
0: Infinity in the what grain of What kind of, of sand.
1: mind are you bringing to it is the question.
0: That's right, yes. Right? Everything yes. is a gateway to suchness, yeah. right? And to yeah. thatness. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's really profound. You must have like a little Medicine Buddha energy in you. That's your... <laughs> <laughs> it's really, wonderful. or as I mentioned, it's just
1: Gemini with Virgo rising.
0: Okay, <laughs> yeah, that could be. That could be.
1: I like to say I don't believe in astronomy uh, uh, in astrology, but astrology believes in me. Yes, so <laughs> yes. I yes. seem to be what I'm defined as, but uh, whatever. There you go. Um,
0: well, let me ask you this: Is there anything that you uh, you've had a lot of? Um, dialogues or interviews about this book, and I tried to bring in a little Bateson and Dogen to give some spice. Is there anything that you wish you could say or that you haven't been able to say or an insight that after all these interviews you've had that you didn't get to share in some of them? I mean, anything that would feel fresh to you?
1: Um, This may be an example of the limitations of the way my mind works. I find the freshness comes from meeting people who ask me new things. Mm -hmm. You know, I've, I've, I've worn this, the paths of this information in my brain for, you know, 23 years, treading (laughs) along these little paths. Um, I think about it the way I think about it. And the way I think about it is what's in the book. Um, I could have given more examples that I occasionally use, and the book would have been 300 pages, and I, no one would read that. But the remarkable and delightful thing um, is that every time I present this material to someone, they come back, someone in the room comes back at me with something I hadn't thought of. And that was fifth graders, Zen students, stem cell biology graduate students, This is the first time anyone quoted Dogen at me during a a conversation. Um, And I'm grateful for that because it's like, oh, I hadn't thought of the Mountains and Rivers Sutra in terms of... But there it is. Um, So I'm kind of... I I, I think I'm actually kind of bored by the way I approach this. I can't... When I finished the book, I mean, writing it was... It's the first book I've written that wasn't, you know, a science paper. Um, It was not easy to learn how to do this. Um, And the editing process was, that's a whole story. Um, So when I finished it, I sort of compulsively reread it a couple of times because I'd been compulsively rereading it for a year and a half and I couldn't stop. Um, But then I stopped. And now I'm realizing I don't remember what's in the book or not. And so I thought I should reread it. And I just can't. <laughs> it's just so boring to me. Um, so I, I, I appreciate you asking me um, what I haven't been able to share, but I think I've sort of spilled my guts on the topic. And the freshness of it is what happens when people reflect it back at me and that's endlessly astonishing
0: <laughs> yeah sure yeah yeah because there's always this that's part of complexity too right the complexity right. of communication is how much of it depends on the one who receives the communication and what yeah. they're what they make and this kind of weird co-creation And what they return that's right and most yeah. of it has to be unsaid anyway. you're depending on I mean, it's like for for anything you write, ninety percent of it I already have to know in some way, and you're getting me the the final tenth there that is the big, <laughs> big insight, right? I, yeah. yeah, 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 that's really good well i hope I hope that it continues to be interesting in that sense. And I certainly do think there's so much of of uh, Dogen that expresses the perspectivalism that you were touching on the importance of mm-hmm. different mm-hmm. perspective and also just the thing that i i think we tried to touch on a few times which is the big challenge for us that we are now living in a psychotic state in relation to how ecologies actually function there right. is a fundamental contradiction between economy and ecology and even between human culture and nature and that's dogen's great uh, spiritual common law question when when the student asks the teacher, how do we turn the mountains, rivers, and great earth and return to the self? And the teacher replies, how do you turn the self and return to mountains, rivers, and the great earth? Right. And that's, yeah. that's that transcendence of the, the boundedness that we've put ourselves in, that your book invites us into. And you're right, that we want to we grab, but there is this way in which we can sense that we are the living activity of this uh, yeah. beautiful world together. Nicely yeah. said. No, nicely said. Your book again. Everybody, I strongly recommend. This is a wonderful book. It's a really wonderful math-free introduction to um, a topic that is hugely important. A subject matter that really together, like let's if we group it with cybernetics. You know, I remember Bateson once gave this talk where he said, "Okay, in the past, uh, in in my entire life, at that time he was sixty-two, there's only been two uh, incidents of anthropological note: the Treaty of Versailles and the development of cybernetics, which, again, I would say that includes it. And he said, note, I left out the automobile, the atom bomb, World War II. Why does he pick those two? And he's got his reasons, but the point is that these two were such shifts that everything else is going to be a working out of them. And if, if the former, if the Versailles consequences went out over the insights that we could have gained that are in your book, so well explained, I mean, this is one of the great geniuses saying that Neil's book is hugely important to read <laughs> because it's one of the only important things that's happened in the past hundred years. And this this thinking, he said, this is the biggest bite of knowledge fruit humanity has taken in roughly two thousand years. Yeah. yeah. Um, you yeah. know, putting Buddha and Jesus and Socrates before that, right? And saying, Yeah, this is it. So thank you.
1: <laughs> I thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank, you. <laughs> thank, you. Thank, you. No, thank
0: you. Thank you for this. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. Fine. I did that. (laughs) Yes,
0: you did that. No, I love it. And for those of you who want to go a little bit further, we're going to take, as I mentioned, a a philosophical look at complexity theory and ask this question, excuse me, more deeply, how we can practice ecological thinking. And so some of that will come, excuse me, everybody, in a series of contemplations soon to appear
1: Look, molecules becoming molecules.
0: Molecules becoming molecules. I love it. Yes, we're all molecules. That makes sense, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. We're 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 right, all right, just right. patterns of energy. Isn't it interesting too? That did you see this recent study of um, showing that cells have a, a vibrational resonance? Yes, yeah. yeah, just yeah, came yeah. out, right? Yeah. So it's yeah. so funny, like the new age things that are constantly becoming. So why well, now, cells really do vibrate. It's all vibration. Right. It's all energy. Right, 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 so right, we're all good.
1: Right. You know, here's the universe drinking itself. <laughs> it, it's the universe drinking itself.
0: That's it. All you have to do is know that this is swallowing the ocean, and you're good. That's Buddha. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, Swallow right. the ocean. All right, my friends. Well, you no, know, oh, yes, no, please. You can say one more thing.
1: Um, when I went into Doka-san, private, you know, mm-hmm. one-on-one interview in the Zen manner with yeah. my incense stick, uh, yeah. emptiness insight. Yeah. Um, Enkyo Roshi, I, I said to her. She said, yeah, that's emptiness. I said, that's it? <laughs> she said, well, it's simple. That doesn't mean it's easy. <laughs> there
0: you go. Oh, I love that. There you go. Well, because yeah. that always, as the, it's everybody knows that I tell the story of when Ananda went to Buddha, and he said, you know, this teaching of interwovenness, it is so subtle and so profound, but so clear. And Buddha said, never say that, Ananda. Never say that. The teaching of interwovenness is profound and it is subtle if it were clear human beings wouldn't suffer so it's same idea it's simple but that doesn't mean it's easy so there's something about it that is still subtle and profound and beautiful but great introduction to it in your book so again thank you Neil so much it's been really great to have a conversation with you my friend and thanks to all of you my friends out there if you have any questions reflections about your experiences of the interwovenness of things and the complexity of life. Please send them in through dangerouswisdom.org. We might be able to bring some of them into a future contemplation. Maybe we'll even get Neil back. If you can say something interesting, it will spark him (laughs) and he'll be ready for more. Until then my friends, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.